Welcome to this week's edition of Skull Rock Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Al John Go, lifelong Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan. And I'm pleased to have another edition of the show from way back in the vault. Dave is out of town, so we have a flashback with Emmy Award-winning TV and film composer Bruce Broughton. And as a Disney fan and Disney Parks fan, you'll know some of his work. He's composed One Man's Dream over there for Disney Parks, Golden Dreams, Music for Fantasia 2000, Ellen's Energy Adventure, Making of Me, if you remember that from Epcot, as well as music for JAG, Tiny Toon Adventures, which also earned him an Emmy nomination, music for the Orville series on Disney Plus and Hulu. So sit back and enjoy Skull Rock Podcast with our friend, Emmy Award-winning composer, Bruce Broughton. Enjoy. This is Imagineer Ethan Reed, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to the show, where every week we discuss all things Disney, pop culture, never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, and much more. I'm your co-host, Al John Go, musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars, and pop culturist. And you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossert, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to this podcast, uh, if you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And, you know, I'm on LinkedIn as well, if you feel like doing LinkedIn. Uh, you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. And uh, I just have to say, I, I'm excited every week. I, I keep saying I'm excited <laughs> about this show. I'm excited every week I'm when excited we're on. Too. You know that, yeah. Al John? I, I am too. You know, first of all, it's great that you and I get to catch up and talk pop culture every week. But it's also exciting whenever you have some of your friends stop by and you have an awesome buddy that's stopping by the show to talk some music today. Yeah, you know, we, we've got Bruce Broughton, the composer, and I can't wait to get to that interview. And also, we've got listener questions for him as well. So, I, and I just want to remind people, if if you've got questions for us, just do us a favor. Send us an email at either aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com or dave at skullrockpodcast.com, and we're going to get to your questions. Rock Podcast interview time. Wow, Al John, I am just so excited to have Bruce Broughton, the composer, on our show today. I got to tell you, Bruce has an incredible array of uh, credits, including on television, some shows that I think are very familiar to most people. He's scored episodes of Gunsmoke, 
Hawaii Five O, the original with Jack Lord, Quincy M E, Barnaby Jones, Dallas Jag. He did the miniseries Texas Rising, The Orville. I mean, that's a favorite of yours, Al John. Absolutely. And he's also done a couple of episodes of uh, Wonderful World of Disney. Uh, he did the score for Rescuers Down Under, and this year, 2020, is the 30th anniversary of Rescuers Down Under. Um, He's done the score for Mickey Donald Goofy, The Three Musketeers, for Bambi 2. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on, folks. Uh, he did two of the three Roger Rabbit shorts. Uh, if I'm correct, it was Roller Coaster Rabbit and Mix Up uh, on the Roger Rabbit shorts. Uh, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, Homeward Bound 2. Uh, I mean, where do I? I, I he, did, he conducted the the music for yeah. Rhapsody in Blue for Fantasia 2000. Again, a 20th anniversary for that this year, as well as the 80th anniversary of Fantasia. So without further ado, well, you know, hold on a second. Before I even introduce <laughs> him completely, I have to say he's won nine Emmy Awards. He's been nominated for Academy Awards. He's been on the Board of Governors of the Academy, of the Television Academy, the Motion Picture Academy. It goes on and on and on. And I had the pleasure of inter interviewing Bruce a number of years ago for my documentary, The Tunes Behind the Tunes. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we have Bruce Broughton. Welcome to our show. Yeah, thank you. It's amazing because I'm only 25 years old. That's right. <laughs> and by the way, I didn't even mention the fact that you taught you you're teaching composition at US uh, UCLA, but you've also taught at USC where right. you also graduated. Am I correct on that? Yes. You weren't too happy that I, you know, they're competitors, USC and UCLA. Yes, cross down were, competitors. Permitted me to do it, and. Uh, it worked out well for me. That's here. awesome. It's so great to have you on the show, Bruce. Uh, I mean, I don't even know where to begin other than I did want to just sort of start off with how you got into the composing uh, end of the entertainment business. I mean, you started back in like 1970. Yeah, actually a little bit earlier than that. I graduated. Okay, so now I, you'll find out how old I really am. Um, I graduated college in, I graduated from USC in 1967. And I was studying music because I came from a very musical family. Um, I had a grandfather who was a composer, an uncle who was a songwriter, an aunt who was a pianist. Um, all my grandparents could play an instrument. My parents could play, could read and play an instrument. They could sing. Uh, they Actually, they could play two instruments they, because... We all played brass instruments. Uh, my brother was a professional trombone player and a composer. So it was kind of like, how do you escape it? When I was a boy, what I really wanted to do was to be an animator. And since then, I found there are a lot of composers who sort of had the same um, desire at the beginning, or there were animators who thought they wanted to go into music at the beginning. But you know, there must be something associated with those two. Um, so I took music because... I really didn't have any other ambition to do. And in fact, I had no ambition to do. I had no ambition, actually. I took, <laughs> I took composition because it was the one thing I didn't know very well. Um, I was a pretty good pianist, a classical pianist. And when I got out of school, of course, you know, you're looking for a job, you're looking for what to do. And I, I had already decided I wanted to try and get in the movies. Not because I knew anything about movie music, because I 
really didn't. Um, I don't think I became aware of music and movies until I was perhaps 16. I mean, before that, I was just a viewer. I just would walk in and get worked up by the movie. Um, but I had a friend in high school who was a big fan of Alex North, and I remember seeing Spartacus with him. And that was sort of the start of it. So one day, I'm, I guess I'm still in school. I'm driving down La Brea Avenue, listening to some song that was getting me all worked up, because songs were good then, you know. <laughs> it all worked up. And I thought, wow, you know, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to write music that makes people feel like that song makes me feel really good. And I thought, well, what kind of music would that be? And I thought, okay, I don't want to be a songwriter because that's too short. I like to write pieces that are longer and, you know, has a lot. I like to write something that gets as many people as possible. I thought movies, because you sit together in a darkened room, you have 50, 300, whatever, whatever you have people. So I tried to get in the movies and eventually found a job at CBS television where I worked in the music department, which is how I got into Gunsmoke and the Hawaii Five-0 and all that kind of stuff. Um, I spent 10 years there, then I went into doing television. Um, I didn't get to do an animation thing until, because I wanted to be an animator as a kid, Disney had been my hero. And I'd read everything I could about animation, how you do it. And I'd read every book I could find on Disney. So the first chance I got to do a Disney animation or to do any animation was on a theme park show called The Making of Me for Epcot. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a one minute clip um, on how babies are made. And uh, that was my foray into animation. And after that, um, I think I had to wait until Rescuers Down Under. Um, and I think the reason I was asked to do that job was because I'd done Silverado, which was you know, this big Western, all this outdoor adventure music. And Rescuers didn't have any songs in it. It was really, a, um, it was really an adventure. And I think that they thought it was going to be a hard sell. I remember it was Tom Schumacher who talked to me. I think he thought it was going to be a hard sell. Basically, I told him I wanted to have his baby too, because it was his <laughs> job. And there I was working at Disney on a big animated picture. And it turned out that the picture was really good. Um, I put out on a Facebook post the other day that I actually had to turn down Home Alone in order to do Rescuers Down Under because the schedules were right on top of each other. Yeah. And I never really... I mean, it would have been nice to do Home Alone, but it was always great to do Rescuers. I get more feedback even now from the movies I've done, particularly for Disney. I'd say that the two movies that come up a lot are Rescuers Down Under and Homeward Bound, because a lot of people who are in their 30s, early 30s, saw them as kids, you know, and they watched them over and over and over and over again. And now their kids watch them and the parents watch it with them. So it was a good deal. I mean, it was... It was really a good deal. It was really have a lot of good memories. If we if we could just step back for a minute, I, I one question I wanted to ask you was the difference between scoring an episode for television versus working on uh, a motion picture, a full length feature film. Um, when you started doing episodic television over at CBS, what was, could you just walk us through what the process is and how much time you had to come up with? Uh, a score for, say, an episode of Gunsmoke or one of those? In those days, they would give composers... um, When I was at CBS, I was part of management, so we hired a lot of composers. Um, We would give composers about two weeks to work on an episode. Once I became freelance, I found out what the real world was, um, and I could give you the schedule for Quincy. 
I did four out of five seasons of Quincy. On Friday, we would look at the show. On Monday, we would record the show. On Tuesday, we would dub the show. And on Wednesday, we'd go on the air. So I basically had the weekend. Wow. And fortunately, I didn't have that much music as other guys did who worked on the weekend. So it was always a very tight schedule. I would say that the biggest difference between television and um, at least television in those days when they all had a you know small screen uh, and it was, it was all manual. Um, I think the biggest difference between television and movies was really the size and also the distractions. Because when you're watching television, people are walking in and out of the room. You know, you get up and blah, you, know, you come back and you catch the show and whatever. And because the screen is so small, if there's anything that you have to pay attention to, it's still going to be a small image as opposed to a screen, which is what, 30 feet high or 30 feet wide. I mean, everything is really quite there. Um, I remember when we did Silverado, which was one of my first features, we took it out to be um, uh, tested by an audience tested. And um, we were up in Seattle and the movie tested great. I mean, the movie tested really well, but for me, I had made one really big boo-boo, which fortunately nobody called me on, but I had done, I'd done a little musical hit that would have been really effective and proper on television, but on on a movie screen, it actually got a laugh because it was so on the nose. You know, it was so, on, <laughs> and it was very embarrassing. But I had I had other moments that were much better than that. You know. <laughs> The, the difference between the two of them is based on size. These days, particularly now during COVID, so much stuff is being streamed and so much stuff is being made for the home screen. And the home screen, of course, is, you know, it's enormous generally. And they have big sound systems. A lot of people have that kind of stuff. So you do it, um, you can do it more feature-like. Um, I, I mean, there's a, big, there's a big difference between now and what we used to do when I was doing Gunsmoke. My kids, by the way, didn't even know what Gunsmoke was. I have two stepsons from England. And I remember years ago, they said, well, what kind of shows did you work on? I said, well, my first credit was on Gunsmoke. And they just looked at me. And I said, you know, uh, Marshall Dillon? No. Guns, hats, horses? No. <laughs> they were little English boys. They didn't know anything at all. But they knew Dallas, I'm sure. Uh, they knew Dallas. Yeah, everybody yeah. knows Dallas. <laughs> oh, it's also the anniversary. I think it's also the 30th anniversary of the shooting of JR, which I also did. Wow, oh, yeah. So there are a lot of anniversaries this year. Yeah. One, one question I wanted to ask you, you, you said difference in size. What, what was the size of the orchestra that you would use for a television show uh, compared to say, the Rescuers Down Underscore? Well, when we worked at, when I worked at CBS, we had, um, we had a budget for 18 people. It didn't matter what you used, you could use 12 kazoos and six Foghorns, you know, I mean, it's, but it had to be eight, eight people. Um, Bernard Herman came in one time and he did a, a Western and his 18 person score was um, six, six contrabasses, six bass clarinets and six bassoons. It was really low. <laughs> it <laughs> was a basement. real sinister drama. And, and you know, they, they loved what he did, but we always had to do 18 people. So um, when I got away from CBS, I found that most TV shows would work with a similar budget. They were usually around 20, 21. Dallas was usually around 21, 22 players. Uh, Universal, sometimes we could creep it up to 35, and I thought I was in heaven, you know. Um, TV and movies, you could occasionally get more. I remember the first time I ever worked with an orchestra, 
uh, was on a mini series of the first Olympics and I got 65 people. And the reason I got that was because there was so little music. I asked the producer if we could jack up the budget or rather not, not jack up the budget, but jack up the orchestra size since we weren't going to use all the time that, you know, that, that we had allotted. Um, for movies, Rescuers probably had about 75 people, um, 75, 80. Uh, the biggest orchestras I worked with were um, on the John Hughes movies, like um, uh, Miracle on 34th Street or Baby's Day Out. I had a huge budget on that and it included choirs. And then I had really big orchestras like 90 or something like that. Uh, you mentioned the Orville. On the Orville, because it's produced by Seth MacFarlane, who really likes music. He has really good composers working on the show. I did the main title with, I think, 77, 78, thinking that I was really pushing it for a TV show. They've had as many as 90 musicians wow. on a one-hour episode because Seth really likes that sound, you know? Yeah, so I mean, that, I mean, that's really unusual for a TV show. These days, because of budgets, TV shows could be five people, a lot of synth stuff. You know, wow. you get to be really creative on how they put together their sounds. But all that stuff wasn't available to us, you know, when I started. When when you're working in animation, because you, you've done, uh, uh, obviously, stuff for Disney, you did some stuff for Warner Brothers, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the difficulty of that kind of music? Because uh, I I know from being in the business and talking to musicians and composers that animation can be tough, uh, yeah. uh, tough to play uh, because you're you're pivoting so quickly and you're playing to the action in the animation. Yeah, I mean the, the biggest difference I think between animation and and um, live action <clears throat> is that animation is always compressed time. So everything is done very quickly. Um, if, for instance, you, you wanted to walk across the room in real time, it might take you 10 seconds. But in animation, you can do it in a second and a half. You, know, you just get in there. So sometimes, I, like in The Rescuers Down Under, which is a live, not live action, it's an adventure film, and it pretends to be real people in real situation, real animals, all that kind of stuff. You realize that when all this action happens, they're happening you know, really very, very quick. Um, so the timing has to be really on top of it. With animation, you don't get as much leeway in being a little late or a little early as you do in live action. I think that's maybe because in animation, um, you don't always animate every frame. You animate sometimes in fours or in eights or something like that. And it seems to give you, uh, it seems to be more necessary to really hit the action when it absolutely happens. So there's a lot of counting. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of math when you're doing animation. Uh, you mentioned Warner Brothers. The series I did for Warner Brothers was Tiny Toon Adventures, and I was the uh, supervising composer. So I wrote the main title, and I wrote I don't know eight nine episodes. But we had a hundred episodes, so I had to find composers who could do that. Um, you've never met such a bunch of whiners in your life. <laughs> and I mean that kindly because it was, um, they were just, it was hard to do. I mean, guys came in just completely frazzled, you know, except for one guy who thought he had died and gone to heaven. 
and he was really good. Richard Stone, he was he was really good at it. Um, no, it's it's very labor intensive. But you know, I had somebody tell me one time, don't talk about how hard it was. Just talk about the talk about how good it turned out. And I have to say, something like Rescuers, we had a lot of shows that were really really good. You know, and these guys. However, they did it, and, and whatever blood they they um, spent it at home opening up, uh, they came with a lot of really good scores. So, yeah. it's, I mean, Rescuers was well. There's another thing about Rescuers because it's a Disney show. There, the one thing I didn't know about this until until it happened to me. Um, I had been on Rescuers for a while. I had seen it before it was all color. I I saw it when it was still a combination of storyboard sketches, a little bit of color, you know, here and there. I remember there was a screening with um, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the head of the studio at the time. And um, it was an interesting process because, I mean, I'm telling you this, but I'm saying it really for the audience, I guess. Uh, after the movie was over, Jeffrey called a meeting of all the animators and the production people and talked about the story and what he had seen in the film and, and all this stuff. Now, it was, I found it really interesting because we were all in this tiny room with an editor and his, I guess at that time it was a chem, um, and Jeffrey, you know, he's a real life person. So, I mean, he's a he's an objective guy. So he's talking about here you need so-and-so and here you need so-and-so. And he's looking around at all the animators and he's looking at the film and he's pointing and all this kind of stuff. And I'm watching all this. And then I'm looking at the animators and they're all doing this. Because they're all thinking inside. They're all looking inside, you know. So I thought, oh, that's really weird because these guys are all subjective. He's objective. He was a good producer and he made a lot of really great things, but these guys had to figure out how to do it, you know? So um, I, I can't remember how I got into that, except that um, uh, gradually, you know, you, you get to see the whole movie. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, I remember where I was going. So I started working on the movie. It was, there was enough color that we could get going. I started working on the movie and I was maybe, maybe a quarter of the way through. And then I got a phone call saying, uh, we would like to record three or four of the pieces that you've written um to see whether we're all in sync or not and i thought oh oh okay well okay so i picked three or four pieces that i thought including the main title i had that i wasn't really happy with and um we spent a day on uh, on a saturday i think recording these things of those four pieces one remained in the movie because after that i had a little talk a little heart-to-heart -heart chat with jeffrey uh at 7 30 in the morning he likes to do those early meetings and he was, he, he really didn't refer to what I had done, but he, he started to go in detail about the film. He had seen what I had done and he still had other ideas about where the movie should be and how it should be. It was, the, I'll tell you, it was one of the most helpful meetings I ever had before a movie. So I changed, I changed the main title, thank God. And, um, you know, I, I changed my themes and, and I put in things that I probably wouldn't have thought about before because now I had a really clear idea of where to go and how to work on this film it was really very helpful it's not like that generally on on live action films and, and on a feature film you do have a little bit of that luxury of of working with the directors and the producers and and a little bit of going back and forth and recording something and and or even even doing a synth version of something to to give them a taste right well yeah that i i don't consider that the last one a luxury um Doing a synth version, doing a mock-up is not really fun. Um, because of my background, and talking about the 18 musicians working at CBS, um, I got to be a good orchestrator. And I got to be 
very comfortable working with large groups and small groups and all that kind of stuff. Working with synths isn't so much fun. I can do it. I can do mock-ups. But if I want it to be really good, I've got to hire somebody else to make it sound good. And then I have to write for the synthesizer and for the samples themselves so that it will sound like something to the people I'm making the demo for. Right. Which means that if I write some really cool orchestration or some very cool dramatic stuff and I can't replicate it well enough in a synthesizer, I won't use it because it has to go through that process. It's sort of like looking at your work while you're still in the middle of, of creating it, uh, which gives the um, gives the directors in the studio some amount of security. But I don't think that it produces necessary for a guy like me who, who does, you know, a, a lot of acoustic stuff comfortably. I don't think it gives them necessarily the best the best option. I mean, it used to be before all the sense the, the digital stuff changed everything. It changed for the movies. I mean, it changes for the, uh, the the way we look at the pictures. It changes for the cinematographers, for the directors, for the composers. I mean, everybody. So in the day when it was all really film and we were counting sprocket holes in order to figure out how long our beats were going to be, um, the only thing that we would play for a director would be the theme. The main, and you usually do it on a piano, or maybe if you were a guitarist, maybe you play it on the guitar, something like that. And that was it. I remember playing. Um, well, I won't mention the film. Um, but when he was a really good director, it was a really good film, and it all turned out great. But I remember playing my themes for the director, and I said, so what do you think? And he goes, not much. <laughs> he wasn't really happy, right? But I, I had no chance, because we were under such a tight schedule, I had no chance to, to give him anything else and, and do several days you know, of auditions. So I started working with what I had, and, and he figured he would deal with whatever he got. Um, once we got to the orchestra, where this piano stuff that sounded like chopsticks suddenly sounded wonderful, it had all this orchestral color and seen it with the film, he was just over the moon. He says, that's just great. Are we going to hear that tune again? And I wanted to say, that's the tune you didn't like on the piano, but I, <laughs> I didn't say that, you know, um, because he's a smart guy and he's a really good director and it's a good movie. But I mean, that's, that's the difference. Here, you put it on a synth and... It's sort of like it's sort of it's sort of like a virtual representation of Cary Grant, you know. I mean, it's not or where's she at in the Star Wars? You know how they put in people who have passed away years before, and yeah. they're again, you know, realized. It's sort of like that. It's not really the right. It's not really quite. It looks, it looks sort of like them, but it, you know, it's not. It's not quite right. But it, getting the chance to um, to record. I mean, the Disney thing I thought was really smart. Um, because it was a big help with me, uh, even in terms of dealing with, you know, like, like one of the things that, that came up in that conversation was wanting to make the rescuers sound very ethnic. Okay, so I researched um, Australian ethnic music, and all I came up with was the didg didgeridoo and boomerangs. And boomerangs are played either by sliding the two things together or by going tap, tap, tap. And that's sort of the whole repertoire, you know. So in in Rescuers Down Under, I ransacked <laughs> the um, libraries of all my percussion friends, and we used uh, Brazilian instruments, uh, we used Brazilian uh, whistles, we used African instruments, we used uh, indigenous American uh, instruments. I mean, we, everything that went boom, plump, thump, you know, woof, 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 we put all that into, into Rescuers. So it's a real ethnic score, but I wouldn't I would say that the uh, ethnicity is, is probably about as realistic as the accents 
in that movie. You know, I mean, they're basically all American accents. Yes, yes. Do, do you recall who the percussionist was uh, that you used? Yeah, it was Mike Fisher. Um, he, he's really great on um, not only odd instruments, as, as a lot of them are, but he's also really terrific at the time of doing um, uh, synthesized uh, instruments. And so putting effects to some of these things. Like, you know, the clackety, 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 clack that's on the main title, that's Mike doing bones. I mean, I, I don't know that everybody knows how to do that, but he has this clackety, 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 clack. When we do that piece in concert, it's kind of a drag to have to figure out what's going to sound like bones, you know, mm -hmm. in order to make that sound. But we had a ton of stuff in there that basically came from Mike. And I just sat there with all his stuff and looked at you know, what he had. And well, I can use that and I can use that and play that one for me again so I get the sound. You know, it was, it was really, really interesting. Do you typically, when you're working on either a television show or a, or a movie, does the director um, uh, talk with you beforehand and say, hey, Bruce, this is what I'm looking for, or give you some sort of uh, guidance uh, before you work on, on a show? Sometimes. Um, I, I think the one thing you don't want to talk about literally is the music. Because if they have a music education, um, the conversation can go sideways. Because basically the music in a film is there to tell the story, help tell the story. It's not to have a concert. You know? And I think a lot of composers, particularly young composers, don't quite realize this. You're trying to make the, the scene more sinister or more suspenseful or more romantic. You're trying to make that girl like that guy a little bit more than she does in that scene. Um, in Silverado, I had probably the best uh, conversation of all of them because he knew exactly what he wanted. Um, he was trying to make the original Western because Westerns hadn't been made for it. The, the biggest successful Western before Silverado was Blazing Saddles, and which was a parody. And, you know, by the time you make a parody, the, um, the genre's dead, you know. So he was really trying to revive the Westerns. And he said, you and I grew up with um, Westerns. He said, but our kids didn't. So if you look in Silverado, it's got just about everything short of Indians that is in the Western. It has all the shootouts and the typical dialogue and the, the John Ford opening and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a conglomeration. And he wanted a score that reflected that. And we talked very specifically about what the score would do. We didn't talk about banjos or harmonicas or guitars or French horns. or I mean, We just talked about dramatically what it was supposed to be. Um, sometimes the director's because they don't know an awful lot about music. And, you know, curiously enough, it's a subject that isn't taught at most film schools. In fact, I don't think any film school actually teaches music in films, um, how to deal with composers. And, and there's a lot of confusion. I've had directors call me and complain about a composer they're working with. He said, because he doesn't understand what I want, but I don't know how to talk to him because I don't know anything about music. At which point I tell him the same thing I just said to you. Tell them your story. Tell them what you want out of the story. Tell them you want that. Um, you, you hope that you can understand the director and you can understand the film and that you have a good enough relationship that you can ask him questions that aren't threatening um, or that, that don't make him insecure or, you know, because he's worried about his movie. <laughs> he's worried that you're going to screw it up. Um, he's worried about what the studio is going to think. He's worried about whether he'll get another job after this job and, you know, all that stuff. Um, there's just a little kind of a dance. It, it's, I think it was Jerry Goldsmith who said, it's sort of like dating. You know, you get on your first date, the first time you meet a director, the first time they meet you, and 
and you try to figure out whether they like to go out to eat or whether they like to dance or whether they like to see movies or the theater and all that kind of stuff. If you can get to a second date, you've got all that stuff done. And then you've got a better chance to deal with the second. If you can get on the third and fourth, well, then you've got a relationship. And that makes things so much easier. Uh, sometimes, sometimes you just sort of fall in love immediately. And I, I'm saying this not because you know all these people, but it is actually true. On Rescuers Down Under, that was such, that was such a great group of guys. I mean, the, the two directors, um, Mike Gabriel and uh, Hendel Butoy. They were spectacular. And we would go out to lunch and all the guys would go out to lunch and we would sit and we would talk about the movies and we'd talk about this movie and, and Tom Schumacher. Again, I mean, just spectacular guys. Um, so it, it made it made conversation a lot easier. If there was something they didn't like or something they, they questioned, it, it was really easy to talk and easy for me to understand what it was they wanted, you know. Um, you hope for a, a situation like that. You don't always get it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's it's a relationship, and and you know it's like the the work that you've done. Whenever you're working with anybody that's under your purview, I mean, if you have to deal with a composer or or the cinematographer, or the editor, all that stuff, there's a certain amount of insecurity in it. And you like to have, like we were talking earlier about musicians, you like to have people whose work you know and are familiar with, who know you. So that if you say, I like it a little bit more green, not that you would do it. Well, maybe on a, on a picture you would. I like a little bit more green. They, they know what kind of green you're talking about rather than, you know. Sure. I, I, you know, I have to tell you, uh, you know, the first time I worked with uh, Mark Waters, he's a friend of, of ours. Uh, Mark, uh, I, I told him right out, I, I don't have a musical bone in my body. I know what I like, uh, but, I, you know, I'm putting my, my faith and trust in you. Uh, and, uh, and we, we hit it off right away. We, we, we're friends. And, and so anytime I would bring him on to do a score on a, on a project, I would say, well, I kind of, you know, do, do what you're going to do. You've already got the theme set for this series or whatever. Uh, but in this particular episode, uh, you know, I really want this sort of brassy bond-like feel. And that would be it. That's all I would say to him. I, I would, you know, I'd give them or, you know, something jazz or swing, you know, I, I'd give them a genre to cue off of. That, that, that's actually a lot, Dave. Um, I worked on a, um, it was a TV movie or a miniseries or something years ago and had, again, I mean, it was one of those things where I just had a fabulous director and, and I loved the project and the whole thing was just going great, you know. So we got to the, but I was doing mock-ups. So he and the writer came over and uh, I went through it and it was going fine until I got to one scene and it was all, it was completely wrong. And I said, well, you know, what, what's going on here? He says, well, you know, I mean, he's fallen in love with this girl. And I said, oh, oh, I didn't get, the girl was a memory. Um, and it, it was one of those things. And I didn't, I, I missed that completely in the picture, completely missed it. And it only involved one scene. So that was one that I had to, to rewrite. Okay, good thing that it happened on a mock-up and not on the scoring session. Because as it turned out, I went to England to score it and they didn't go with me. They would have gotten to the dubbing state and go, oh God, now what do we do, you know? So um, yeah, you, you need to have the comfort of being able to talk to people and let them know. It's also helpful, you know, if you can say, like I say, we're just talking about the story here. You, you might have a scene that you don't particularly like 
because it's not one of your favorites that you thought turned out the way you wanted. So you want the composer to help fix it. But the composer looks at it and thinks that, it's, that it works just great. The scene that doesn't work great is the one right before it. <laughs> so, so he might say, or she might say, um, actually, so I, I think that works okay. If, but if we did this, if we put in the music here and then took it out, and then we put in the music here, that scene would stand out and would get more energy. And, and so you sit there and you think about it and go, okay, I can work with that. You know, I'll try that. Or maybe we can try it another way. Maybe he'll give you two or three different ways of doing it and provide you with an alternate. Sometimes composers will do that. Um, sometimes you get into a, a situation where you, neither one of you are very sure whether the scene should take music or not. And the composer might say, I mean, I've done this. Uh, I'll say, look, let me write it for you. If it works for you, you can keep it. If you don't want it, don't use it, but at least you'll have it. You know, you won't have to say, Oh my God, I wish we'd had that cue there. You know, um, it's like I say, it's, it's, it's like, it's like a date and there's a lot of uh, personal relationships around. There are people like you and Mark. I mean, I can, I can see that one right away. Um, there are people who you just, you just immediately like there are other people that you, you think, okay, this is going to be a job and I'm going to do it as well as I possibly can. And they've got a lot of trust in me, but we may ne never get to the warm fuzzies. You know, I mean, there, there was one guy I worked with who was, he was a good director and he was very well known. Um, we didn't really hit it off. He was always the boss. You know, he was always the boss and I was the guy working for him. And uh, I remember we were recording uh, the score and he and I had played him my mock-ups. And at that point, my mock-ups were really pretty miserable. <clears throat> so he listened to the score. He walked out on the stage and listened to it. And he turned to me and he said, is that the same thing you played me on the uh, on your mock-up? I said, yeah. He said, I liked your mock-up better. Ooh, ooh. That was not, that wasn't, it wasn't like change this, you know, it was just like, I liked your mock-up and my, my mock-up sucked. I mean, it was, bad, you know. <laughs> oh. but he preferred that. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, okay, well, we'll just try to get through this job. <laughs> you know, Bruce, you're telling that story and I felt it, <laughs> you know, I, I felt, I, I felt that. It. I, that was a story I've forgotten, but mostly, mostly it's pretty good. I'll tell you what was really cool was when, um, in the days before we had mock-ups, when the director or, or the producer, whether you're working on TV or a movie, uh, was listening to the score for the first time, and they suddenly saw their picture with the music, and how excited they would get that things were. I mean, in those days when when the score worked well, you know how excited they got, and how um, you know just the, the feeling in the room just went like crazy. You, you you felt wonderful that you'd done a wonderful job. It isn't always quite like that anymore, but it's. Uh, but the music is, is an important component. I mean, I've always viewed the music as a supporting character to everything else that's going on. You know, the, it's the supporting character to the visuals on the screen. And, uh, and a good score can make or break a movie, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it can break a movie, but it can certainly help. Um, it can certainly help make one. Um, yeah, I don't know. Lots of things music does. One of the things music does, it makes time go faster. Um, so if you have a slow scene, sometimes music will move it along. Um, it can definitely solidify a, a time and a place. Uh, it can really help with um, character identification and uh, mood. Um, but the truth is, you know, if the movie is really great, I mean, if all the scenes are working, uh, you probably don't need a lot of music. I mean, it's it's 
music is sort of a remedial. I mean, I hate to say this, and I, I mean it with small letters, but it's, it's often kind of a remedial thing. You know, you put it in for a specific purpose in order to do such and such and so and so. And not everybody, not every agree, excuse me, not every director agrees on what the use of music is. You see some guys who will use music in a certain way always for their movies. And then you see other people, like, you know, Steven Spielberg is a good example. Steven has that kind of relationship with John uh, Williams that's, um, you know, it's, it's almost like father-son. I mean, they, they work together really well. Steven, I think, has said that John has never disappointed him. But they, they do have conversations. And John listens to him because Steven's the, the director and all that kind of stuff. But when the music's on a Steven Spielberg film, it's on so that you can hear it. It's, it's not obliterating dialogue. It's not obliterating sound. But it's there. It's a certain kind of music that... Stephen likes. If you take another director, sometimes I mean, I've had films where the music. You said, "Is there a score in here?" I mean, the music's so soft, can hardly. I mean, what's the music doing for you? You know, it's a very subjective thing. Um, I would say that in using John Williams as an example, he's been fortunate enough to work on movies where the music indeed was a very impressive element, like in Star Wars. I think so, some people would say the music made Star Wars because I know that the film was considered to be in trouble when it was in production. Um, but, you know, with that theme and, and that style and all that kind of stuff, it just, it, it made the movie have sense. You know, made, made, and Jaws is even probably a better example. Without the music, it's just a fish, you know, just a fish story. So, and I think Stephen has said that. It's, uh, and, but, it's, you know, it's a really good movie. It just needed that extra actor. Well, you know, certainly in, in, you know, when you talk about Jaws, I mean, just hearing that bump, Bum, yeah. bum, 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 bum. You know, I mean, anytime you heard that, that that goes back to sort of a light motif. I mean, would you consider that to be the light motif oh, for the shark? Good. Right. Yeah. I, I, I remember the first time I saw it, um, I was with my wife at the time, and uh, we were looking at it at the, um, I think it was an academy screening or something like that. And that little theme, that little motif had been used enough that you knew you knew what it was. So there was one scene where it was using the theme and you could just, I mean, you could just feel that the shark was around somewhere. And I looked at her and she's actually crawling up on her seat, trying to get out of her seat. <laughs> well, the funny thing about that scene was there was no shark. It was just the threat of the shark. That's right. It could be there. And I thought it was, I thought it was pretty brilliant. You can't always do that with a motif, but that one was Pretty brilliant. I love I love the, the fact that you. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just love the fact that you create characters with their types of motifs or their themes. Uh, Jaws being one. John Williams doing stuff uh, for the character intros for Star Wars is another. And and you've done the same thing in the past with with your scores, which is really cool. It's a here comes the hero, the hero entrance, which is really nice. Uh, nice to hear. Or in your Disney attraction music, where it says it in the name of the attraction and you were able to encapsulate the name and the feeling, the mood, the character of that attraction in the music, which is great. Thank you. The, the, uh, the, the one that comes back to me probably the most often is the theme from Homeward Bound because it's, you know, it's dogs and cats, it's a family. And um, I've done a lot of family movies. I don't know why I, I wasn't looking for them, but I, I'm thankful I got them. And people will say, that theme, I mean, I've actually heard somebody say, that theme changed my life. What do you think about music you've written changing somebody's life? And I said, I don't want to think about it. But um, <laughs> when you hear that theme, if I sit down and play it on the piano in a class, people go, oh, oh, that's Homer Bound. Oh, I love, you know. 
So yeah, these things do attach themselves to people. It does become part of somebody's life. And I get email, I mean, I, I know this sounds silly, but I get emails out of the blue. I got one the other day um, from somebody that I think was either about Homeward Bound or about Rescuers, um, thanking me for writing it and how often they will play the score or watch the movie. Because now, given TV what it is, you know, you can download this stuff and watch them forever. Or their kids watch it. So it's, it's like the gift that keeps on giving, you know, it's terrific. When you talk about themes, uh, um, and, and I mentioned leitmotif, can you explain to our audience what a leitmotif is and how it's used in, in film yeah. or television? Come to the acoustic part of my room over here. The, um, in Jaws, the theme is very simple. Or maybe even better here. just two notes. I mean, I, I, I have heard a story that when John played that for Stephen, Stephen looked at me and said, you're kidding, right? <laughs> because, and also, I mean, one of the things, one of the things to listen for when I'm doing this is I'm doing this on a piano. There is no special sound on the piano. It just sounds like a piano. And if I played it up here, it's not threatening. It's just two notes, you know? So that would be a light motif. Um, classically, here's another one. So um, that's actually used in cartoons, you know, when when fate enters and they, they might play, bah, 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 you know, and everybody knows, oh, yeah, that's fate, you know, whatever. Um, the theme, well, I'll, I'll, because we were talking about, I can use um, um, Homer Bound. A theme is longer. Um, a theme is like a melody. It's not necessarily a melody, but it's a long, I mean, it's not necessarily a complete melody, but sometimes you get a chance to actually finish it. Uh, and you use it dramatically, and it's it's used for association with either a character or a situation. So in Homeward Bound, the theme was used for the adventure, and was used primarily for the for the feeling about the dogs and how the family felt about the dogs and how we felt about the dogs and the cat. So. So it has this big um, outdoors kind of feeling when the orchestra comes in, that just soars, you know, and then you've got all the mountains and here are these little animals walking. Through. So when you come to that, it's a, it gathers in the film so that at the very end, when the animals all come back, it's, you just sit there and ball, <laughs> you just sit there and cry because you're so happy that everybody's together again. And, and you play the theme, you know, you play the theme and people go, oh my God, oh, they're all back. So, <laughs> so it's like that. It's, um, it's not always the best way of doing things, but it's, uh, in fact, sometimes directors get confused on it and say, well, maybe we should have a theme for him and a theme for her and a theme for that. It's sort of like that in Star Wars where it works, but it doesn't always work. And sometimes you want um, a theme or a sound, in fact, a, a sound in, um, in the very first Pink Panther movie, um, Henry Mancini had a sound, it was like a crunching sound for the bad guy. There was a hand that appeared and we never saw who that was until later. And whenever that would happen, Mancini would come with this something like that. And it wasn't a theme from a you know master melodist, um, but it worked in the movie. And it was a little over the top, but you know, I mean, Mancini knew what he was doing. Um, or even in the Pink Panther, boom, ta-dum, 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 ta-dum. No, that's, that's the Pink Panther. And, and if you use it, you look for the 
pink and pink animal. You know? I love those those types of themes and emotions that uh, evoke through listening to this music and. I I know that you're a big fan of brass instruments. You've you've had a lot of that that type of of stuff in your uh, compositions. But you know some of the some of the the lighter fare, some of the other things that you've done um, is just absolutely great. I mean, so thank you for for that because uh, I think you you know your composers like yourself play a, a great uh, not only great part in the movies that we enjoy that become part of our lives, but the soundtrack of our lives. And I, I appreciate that so much because uh, it does make a big difference. And, and it's not silly that uh, these fans write you because they're just literally f- uh, formulating all the thoughts and the emotions that happen when they watch these films. I think it's great. Oh, it's, it's true. It, like Dave, you mentioned talking to Mark, you, you might want a bond kind of brass thing there. Well, that means, um, John, um, no, his name just flew out of my head. Um, he wrote all the Bond films. John, that's an English guy. Everybody, everybody who's watching is saying, oh, John, so-and-so, you know, stupid. Anyway, I mean, he, this is a composer who's been um, absolutely identified with a certain kind of score that he did for the Bond films. And when we think of Bond film music, we think of that. You know, the same as with a certain kind of cartoon, you think of Carl Stalling because he was a friggin' genius at it. And, and um, that kind of style became cartoon style, which a lot of people didn't understand and have misrepresented in, in different ways. But, you know, years ago, I was working at CBS. I was still on staff and CBS sent out um, one of the guys from CBS Publishing. And his job was to listen to our music that we were doing for the series and see if there was anything that they could uh, market or maybe turn into a song or that they can make, which was, you know, what a publisher is supposed to do. I wish they all did it. So he came out and I'm playing him all these backgrounds because I was the kid in the department. I'm playing him all this background music, the, the background of this and the background of that. And after I says, Jay, this stuff is just, there's nothing melodic in it. There's nothing. It's just this background stuff. And I said, well, you know, it's a TV show and, and it's a TV show one a week and we do a lot of it. He says, look, he said, a couple of years ago, there was this B movie in Germany. It was not a great movie. Hardly anybody went to see it, but it had a tune in it that became Strangers in the Night. You know, you can never tell. And I'll tell you, it, uh, like a light went on in my head. I thought, oh, oh, you're right. And then I thought about Henry Mancini, how Henry Mancini always worked his themes in the movies. I mean, he had beautiful themes. He would work it in the background as a source piece, or he would work it in here, or he'd work it in there. And from that moment, I tried to start working on my themes, even in the TV shows, that um, if nothing else, they really helped in the, in the development of the story. And, you know, as it turned out, particularly when it got into the movies or in a case like Tiny Toons, uh, they became popular in themselves. So when people hear that theme, they think of that movie. It's like a win-win, you know, it's like, oh, that's the restaurant. I love that movie. I just love that. Remember that scene where, you know, it's like that. Just because you play them a little bit of music, that Homeward Bound, um, does that for people. They think of their favorite scene and when the dog and the cat did this. and you know, um, It resonates with them. Yeah, it really does resonate. You, you know, uh, Al John mentioned uh, brass instruments and, and and you have a background in brass. Um, uh, and I want to mention, because we're coming up on the holidays, we're, we're in the midst of the holidays, I should say, because we just finished Thanksgiving. Um, you've written some pieces for the Salvation Army. 
Well, that's how I grew up. My, that, that's why everybody in my family is so musical. My family, uh, my parents, my grandparents, aunts and uncles uh, all worked for the Salvation Army. And part of, the, they're a, um, <clears throat> they're one of, they're, they're two things. They're an evangelical religious organization, but they have a very strong charitable social outreach side. So um, in this, in this evangelical thing, uh, they had, their background in, involved uh, street corner evangelism. So they, for some reason, they got the idea of using instruments that would kind of draw a crowd. And because it started in England, um, and because also it's very practical given the weather, they eventually went to brass bands. And the brass band movement, the British brass band movement is still a very big deal in the Salvation Army, but the Salvation Army music is a very big deal in the British band music, brass band movement. And I, I write music for brass bands uh, for all sorts of things. Um, so for that reason, when I was about six, I guess, six or seven, I started to learn to play the piano. And then I was also handed a trumpet. And I was never that interested in playing a trumpet, but my brother was really interested in playing the trombone. So I was around brass a lot. Um, as I got into school and as I got into the movies and I started to do TV and all that kind of stuff, I learned more and more about woodwinds and strings and percussion. And, you know, you have to learn all this kind of stuff, but brass is something that I, you know, I still like a lot. In fact, right now I'm working on a brass piece that's for a, um, an upcoming record that uh, will go into production of Christmas, you know, Christmas pieces. We have a bunch of composers who are really good stuff, um, really good composers who are going to be writing for this big brass ensemble, which for some reason suits Christmas. It suits the idea of Christmas. You know, I was just about to say, as you were talking about that, I, I that's exactly what I was thinking. When I hear brass music, I immediately gravitate to the holidays. Yeah. And, and in fact, if you're listening, if you if you listen to KUSC, the only classical station out here in Los Angeles, um, you know, this time of year, you start to hear more brass pieces uh, being played, and and I I love it. I, I just love that kind of music. Uh, it, it just does something for me viscerally, you know? Well, it certainly wakes you up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, you know, some of the some of the best musicians I've worked with were brass players uh, for whatever reason. And, and, and I'll just say, um, uh, let me qualify that. I've worked with some uh, great musicians just across the orchestra, including, by the way, and I did want to mention this, your wife, Belinda Broughton, uh, first violinist who uh, I think she's played on virtually everything that I ever uh, had to have scored. Um, and yeah. she's, she's absolutely terrific. But when you go to brass, you, you think of people like uh, Rick Baptist on trumpet and Alan Kaplan uh, on the trombone. I mean, those guys were just absolutely amazing and fun, you know, just fun group of guys. Yeah, the brass is probably the most relaxed group. I'm trying to think whether percussion is more. Right. The brass is usually about the most relaxed group in the in the orchestra. Um, I guess for lots of reasons because they're they're noisy and rowdy. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know, but um, no, they're a bunch of you know a bunch of great guys. I it's funny. I mean, I, I did one big brassy score, um, which was Silverado, and it had that big horn rip at the beginning. And people, you know, people talk about that. So when I walk into it, if, if I'm at a university and I walk into the band room and the horn player recognizes me, he'll play the fanfare from Silverado. <laughs> yeah. However, I walk into a band room and there's a tuba player 
you'll play my tuba concerto, which is a classical piece, which is also very popular, you know? So it's kind of funny. I mean, you, you get to know that you've been, you know, you've been recognized just by hearing the, the riff that goes on in the back room. It's kind of <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, this is, this has really just been an, uh, incredible having you on our show. Al John, do you have any, uh, any more comments and questions? Yeah, we have a, a couple questions here before we get to, uh, one of our listener questions. Can you talk a little bit about your work on, um, uh, Fantasia? Oh yeah. Because, um, uh, cause I know that, that, that kind of brought the two of you guys together. Did it not? Well, yeah. I, I didn't really actually work that much on uh, Rhapsody in Blue. That was Eric Goldberg directed that piece. Okay. Uh, and although I was the artistic coordinator uh, and visual effects supervisor for Fantasia 2000, I didn't really have direct interaction with any of the the conductors. Uh, uh, and I don't even think I even went to, I might've gone to one scoring session. I think there was only one other conductor. Uh, that was- uh, James James Levine. Yeah. Yeah. And um, for the recording, he re <laughs> re recorded Rhapsody. Well, I, yeah, I can tell you how that came apart. Uh, came about. Um, originally, Rhapsody in Blue wasn't going to be part of Fantasia. Uh, it was a standalone project that Eric Eric Goldberg was doing. Eric is a fabulous animator, and he was taking some time off from his work at Disney. And Michael Eisner, uh, who was head of Disney at the time, had apparently given him um, a project to help him work on a project, which was this Rhapsody in Blue thing. And um, how I got to be involved in it was that Eric had done his film to, a, to an edited version of Rhapsody in Blue that came off a commercial album. And the easiest thing would have been to buy the album, but you know, it had like the New York Philharmonic on it and lots of big names and all that kind of stuff. And the album would have been really, really, really expensive to do. So I got a call because this is something that I had learned how to do, particularly when we were doing Tiny Tunes. So the job was, I said, yes, I'd, I'd be happy to do it. And, I, you know, and as I say, it was just for this one Rhapsody in Blue short. Um, so what we had to do is we had to break down the original recording and make timings so that it matched the recording beat for beat, second for second. Um, I, what I didn't realize when we were doing it first, and I can't remember actually how we did it, was that a lot of the piano things are not really done to a metronome. A lot of the piano solos are done just as the play, they're just done freely, you know? So we had to break those down and, and have a pianist who could follow the clicks and, and uh, follow the beats and all that kind of stuff. So that's what it is. So we got, to, we got together uh, an orchestra and did this score to Rhapsody in Blue with the edits that Eric had made from the original recording. And it was very successful, you know, it worked really well. So the next thing I knew, it was in Fantasia. And uh, I think along the way is, I mean, you know how animation works. This scene, you think it's going to work okay, and you go, well, maybe we're not going to include that after all. So I think they needed space and they put in Rhapsody in Blue, which is a great decision because it's a, you know, it's a great piece of animation. And that's how I got to be involved in Fantasia. That's awesome. Wait, wait, let me ask you this. Did you, do you recall seeing the original Fantasia yeah. uh, growing up? Uh, did you, did you see it in a theater? Uh, did it have any impact on you? 
Yeah, I was 12 years old. I saw, again, at that time, I still want to be an animator. I was 12 years old. I was I lived in San Francisco at the time. And I remember seeing it in the theater and was really interested in the animation. I, I wasn't wise enough, I think, uh, to really consider the sync and all the things that went with it, but I was really happy to see the, the way the animation worked with the music. Yeah, I remember being pretty dazzled by it. You know, a lot of the uh, composers that I've spoken with over the years, uh, I always ask them that question, if, if, if Fantasia had any influence on them. And uh, just about every one of them uh, has some similar like story of when they first saw it and, um, and how it impacted them. Well, apparently, well, actually, Roy Disney told me this, that Fantasia came about because of um, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. The Sorcerer's Apprentice was expensive and it was long and it was a standalone. And Fantasia uh, went into production as a way to be absorbed the costs of um, Sorcerer's Apprentice. Uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice is, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm probably the one millionth person to say this, but it has to be one of the great greatest pieces of art, animation art, and the combination of music and, and uh, animation ever made. You know, it's it's just staggeringly wonderful. And, um, you know, there were a couple of pieces that they, they, I mean, as you know, they kept in Fantasia 2000. That's one of them. <coughs> I mean, it's, it's just fabulous. Um, and it, it's not often you find a piece of music that suits itself so well to uh, that kind of storytelling, you know, to all the gestures and all the things that the animators made out of it. I've seen the original timing sheets on, on uh, Sources of Press and they're, um, it's like looking at holy writ, you know. I mean, it's pretty amazing. So, and, and you know, and that's a piece of music uh, where uh, it's synonymous now uh, with with the uh, with Mickey. Oh yeah, uh, as the Sorcerer's Apprentice. I mean, you can't you can't view one without thinking of the other, or yeah. you can't listen to the music without thinking of of the film. Yeah, that's that's, that's yeah, it's a great combination. We've got a question for you, Bruce. Uh, one of our top fans, Spencer, asks, can you please talk about the development for the score for Soren Around the World? Also, were you involved in the composition of the cue music? Listening to the cue and attraction music constantly when he writes, finding it to be his favorite piece of music from the world of Disney. Soren to Tower. We are ready for takeoff. <laughs> Okay, so Soaring, Soaring Around California was the first one, and that was done by Jerry Wilson. Mm -hmm. um, Jerry was, uh, this is just incidental, Jerry was my favorite film composer. I mean, I, I thought Jerry was just, I still do, I, I thought he was just fantastic. Amazing. Um, I, I told him once that, I said, you know, you're the only composer I know who ever made me think that I didn't know enough. Because I'd look at his movies and i go, oh, I got to go back to work, you know, <laughs> because with the way he did things. Anyway, he did the original one. He wasn't available to do the second one because he passed away. And um, so I got chosen to do it, which I frankly was very proud to have. Um, Jerry, I, I didn't know Jerry real well. I mean, you know, we met several times and we talked and a few phone calls and that kind of stuff. But Jerry's in my history was that he was supposed to do um, Baby's Day Out and he couldn't do it. So I did it. 
he was supposed to do the original, uh, uh, not Cinemagique. Yeah, no, not Cinemagique. Um, the, um, the first Circle Vision thing I did for... Um, was it uh, was, was, was it China? Reflections no, of China? No, China was Richard Bellis. Um, oh, okay. Or was it... it was, uh, time after time. Okay, and gotcha. The Visionarium in France. And oh, that's right. Also in, in um, Florida. Jerry was supposed to do that and wasn't available. So I got... That's how I got into the parks. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then Jerry was supposed to do Tombstone. And he had worked with these people all the time. He wasn't available, so he recommended me. And so I got to do Tombstone. So we had, I mean, I, I was following Jerry around. And, and, you know, if you have to follow somebody around, who better than him? So um, this one, I'm not quite sure how or why, but I'm grateful that it came to me. So the thing was, um, because people were so crazy about the original score that Jerry had done, I, I was obligated to use Jerry's material, Jerry's themes. And which sort of ties back to the thing that we were talking about earlier, Dave, you know, themes and, and um, all those kinds of things that relate to films. That theme was already heavily in everybody's mind who had seen it. So I used that theme. I had his scores. And then I wrote new music for the things that didn't apply to that or where the situations were different. And then I wrote all of the music for the pre-shows, which is what you're talking about. I've done a pre-show for... Um, Tokyo Sea, done one for, I think, Epcot, one for... Honey, I Shrunk the Audience? No, I've, I've done those two. I mean, there yeah. are a lot of, but I mean, for the performances of Soaring, I've done three or four different kinds of pre-show. Oh, okay. Depending yeah. on what, what park it's in. Because the, the, the way the shows differ, uh, they differ only slightly, is at the very ending, they always try to bring you back to the park you're watching it in. Mm -hmm. So Tokyo Sea... You fly around the world and then you end up in Tokyo or you end up in Shanghai or you end up in Los Angeles or Epcot and all that kind of stuff. So I have these pre-shows that work on those things. And um, I, you, you treat those primarily as movies. Um, I've said often, and, and it's easy to say it here, that the two most interesting kinds of jobs I've ever had for me were animation and theme parks. And one of the reasons is because in animation and theme parks, there's no screwing around. You can't, you can't do things off the top of your head like you can in a film. I mean, in a film, if a scene doesn't work, you can maybe go back and reshoot it. In animation, if a scene doesn't work, well, sorry about that, folks. You know, you you got to find some way of being able to work with the material that's there because you can't just go reshoot it or can't re, you know, I mean, it's, it's just too expensive. And in theme parks, you know, when you go to a Disney theme park. Um, a lot of things are already worked out. Like they know how long it's going to take to seat the people. They know how long it's going to take to get the people into the room. They know how long it's going to take to get the people out of the room. Uh, they know how long the attraction is. They know when the door is shut. They know when the lights come on, all that kind of stuff. So when you do a theme park show, you have all these cues um, that are physical cues that you can include into the music that help people negotiate their way around the park. Um, when I did... Um, Spaceship Earth at Epcot. Uh, you know, it's the one that goes into the, into the big um, circle. Um, they said the production guy said to me, he "says We've got one problem that we don't know how to fix, and you're going to have to you're going to have to fix it." And I said, "Well, what is that?" And they said, "Well, the tram, you know, goes through the goes through the ride, but every once in a while the tram stops." Now I had written I had written the, the show years before, and I thought the tram stopped because it broke down. But in fact, that's not why the tram stops. The tram stops for safety reasons. 
Maybe they have a handicapped people, they have to get onto the tram, so they'll slow it to make sure that nobody's gonna get hurt. Maybe they have other issues, but it's mostly always regarding safety. So I said, we have several rooms, historical rooms, and each room is another place of history. Like we have uh, Rome, we have Phoenicia, we have Egypt, and they're all next to each other, and each room has its own music in it. So the tram could get stuck when you're between two rooms, and we don't know how you're gonna deal with that. And I thought, oh, this is really easy because it was already dealt with in, in a small world. If you think of small world, you know, it's this very slow boat ride that goes around all these characters singing the exact same tune in the exact same key, except they're all singing in different languages. So what it is, is what I did is I made a piece for when this happened, it happened three or four times in Spaceship Earth. I would write a piece that had all the same chords and all the same tempo. And then I would write a piece that would use that material so I could stack them on top of each other and make sure that they all played together. You know, it was what we would call in college, it was a chacon, a type of a passacaglia. It was a type of um, Baroque uh, kind of composition that, you know, happened to be really workful, really useful in a Disney theme park. <laughs> you know, so I solved it right away. It was really cool. Um, the, the other thing about the theme parks is, and as well as with the animation, is they always have issues that you've never come up against before. Like particularly with the theme parks, you never know what you're gonna be seeing. Is it a ride? Is it a movie? Uh, what kind of special thing do they have? Like we did a 3D um, movie, Honey, um, I Shrunk the Audience. We did the ride, which is um, Spaceship Earth. We've done movies like Cinema Gique, which is a real movie that was done in France, a spectacular movie. Um, you just never know, you just never know what you're gonna walk into or how you're gonna solve the problems. It's just great. I mean, it's really creative stuff. It's really cool. No, I absolutely love it. We have one last question, and this one comes to Chris, uh, from Krista. She asks, were you able to meet Michael Jackson when you scored Moonwalker or helped score Moonwalker? And what was and how was it like to work on that project? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, Michael was on tour when I did that. So uh, I got the call and um, met his director and I think it was the editor. And so we looked at the movie together, we talked about it, and uh, Michael was in charge of the production. Michael was the executive producer. Uh, everything came from Michael, but I had to work with these other people because Michael was unavailable. So then the director said to me, okay, you're gonna to need to talk to Michael. He's on tour, but he will call you. He's in Japan, he'll call you. I said, okay, fine. So one night I'm sitting in my house and I get this phone call like around 10 o'clock at night and I'm hearing shh, you know, over the phone, this is a long time ago. And I thought, oh, what is this? And then this kind of a high pitched voice, hello. <laughs> I can't do the voice for a while. <laughs> oh, this must be Michael Jackson, you know, because his voice was kind of high pitched. So it turned out, he says, this is Michael. And I said, oh, you know, like I, so I figured, oh yeah, I know who this is. So we talked for a little while. He was very pleasant. And um, I told him I'd seen the movie and told him what I thought and what my plans were to do it and then waited for any of his input. So he gave me a little bit of idea of what he was looking for. I said, fine, I'll tell you what, let me, um, let me go away now and work on the theme. And uh, maybe I can talk to you in another week. Okay, he said, I'm going to be in Australia then. Okay, so a week later, 
he called me from Australia and we went through the same thing. And I played him the theme on the piano, like I just did with Homer Down. And he was very, he was very nice. He said, oh, that's really nice. He said, when you get into this one section, could you get, could you make it go a little deeper? And I said, oh, you mean a little bit like this? Yeah, yeah, like that. And, and could you do this? So that was, those were my um, director's comments, you know, <laughs> not director's comments, the producer's comments from, from Michael. So I did the movie and then he, um, he came out for the recording. And we spent the day together. I mean, I, I was recording the music, then I would go in and I would talk to him. And uh, he was, I have to tell you, he was a very, very, very nice person. Um, very quiet, not at all like his persona. Um, very quiet. I, I would walk into the room and then sometimes he'd hold his hands up and he would, he'd applaud because he liked that piece, you know. Um, we didn't really have any problems. But I, one thing I did notice about him was that at one point, he was sitting down next to the couch, next to me on the couch, and looking up at the director and the editor who were talking about something in the film. And he got to be a little bit more concerned. And suddenly, he got up and he put himself into that. It was as if to say, there's nothing that's going to be decided here unless I decide it. You know, I mean, he was definitely the guy in charge. Not that anybody was trying to take anything away from him, but it was really his movie. Um, I invited my daughters to come to the session. And um, he agreed to meet them. My youngest daughter started to, started to cry when it was her time to go see Michael because she was so nervous, you know. Um, it was really it was really a cool day. I mean, he was he really couldn't have been better. And it's a very I have a very nice memory of the time with him. You know, that's amazing. Thank you so much for those uh, answering those questions. Great. That was awesome. Bruce, uh, we're going to wrap it up with you. I just want to say thank you for coming on our podcast, uh, talking about music in, in film and television and animation and theme parks. Uh, and I want to wish you a uh, wonderful uh, holiday season. Give my best to Belinda. Um, and thank you very much. Well, thank you both. I mean, I've actually, you're asking me questions, not all of which I've had before. So this was really a lot of fun. I mean, I had to think about some of these things. So I really enjoy it. You, you guys are both really delightful to be with and, and to talk to. So thank you. Thanks, thank you, Bruce. Bruce. Happy holidays. And you holidays. too. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. What an awesome interview, Dave. Uh, Bruce, what a great guest. You've got the greatest friends coming here on the show. 
You know, it, it's really terrific when you get a chance to talk to somebody like Bruce Broughton uh, about the craft, about composing for, for television, film, animation, uh, theme parks. Uh, I mean, he's done it all. He's doing it all. Uh, and he's so gracious about um, uh, talking about it. And uh, I thought it was a terrific interview. I really enjoyed that a lot. And absolutely amazing. I have a feeling that we could have gone on and talked about so many other things, including the theme park. We just touched on the theme park attractions at the end with a listener question, but just so many great stories. So uh, thank you, Bruce, for being part of the show. We hope you can come back soon and talk more. (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, we've got more guests coming up. I'm not going to name any right now, quite frankly, because I have to call them and get them onto the show. Uh, <laughs> right. But, but I have to say, you know, we're, we're, we're really on the, uh, the, the, uh, the slow slide into uh, the end of the year now, you know, That's and hard to believe. Uh, it's, it, it's, you know, in three weeks uh, plus uh, we're going to hit uh, the Christmas holidays and the year is over. And I, I think, boy, uh, I think, like many people, we can't wait for 2020 to leave us. I can't either, but uh, it's been great uh, connecting with you every single week, Dave. Much like our audience, thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you love Disney and pop culture, don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as uh, give us that like and follow. And give us those reviews as well. We'll read them on the air. You can review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, um, coming soon to iHeartRadio, which will be exciting. And then uh, so many other podcast platforms. So we do appreciate that. And you can also email us, Dave or Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. Any parting words as we are in the midst of this holiday festivities <laughs> in, under lockdown? I, I just want to uh, you know, say to everybody, please stay uh, healthy. Uh, be safe out there. I, I know everybody's going to be out there trying to do holiday shopping. Uh, please remember your local businesses, your small businesses. Many of them have websites, especially the bookstores. The independent bookstores are doing curbside pickups and all of that. I know if you're out here in Los Angeles, Vraman's bookstore in Pasadena. Uh, it's a terrific bookstore. They carry some of my books, and I know that they have copies of the 3D Disneyland like you've never seen it before. Uh, so if you're looking to get a, a copy of that, and I, and by, by the way, they're selling fast, I have to tell you, selling fast. Uh, check out Vraman's in Pasadena. Absolutely. And yes, a great plug for the book, Dave. Don't forget to check out the book. We'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can pick your copy up as well. Perfect for you or another friend or family member that absolutely loves Disney, especially Disneyland. So uh, until next week, Al John, Dave. Day, hey, Al John, uh, have a great week. Everybody yes. listening, have, a, have a, a safe and healthy week. And we will see you next week with a surprise guest. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list 
rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.